Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and along with uh, verse 12. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the word of God. For the people of God. Thanks be to God. Won't you please pray with me for just a moment, please? Oh, Lord God, your word is a source of encouragement and wisdom and strength and vitality for our lives. Your word empowers us to live as your people, and so we open our hearts and our minds to be receptive, that your spirit might do a good work through your word to touch us and encourage us and challenge us and equip us for the life we're called to live. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. It has been widely recognized as one of the greatest works of art in human history. Michelangelo's statue of the David. It weighs uh, six tons, carved out of solid marble, 17 feet high. Completed in 1504, it took Michelangelo four years of solid work to complete it. And uh, those of you who are art history majors or you studied art history, you know there's several backstories to this particular statue. One of the ones I really uh, resonate with was the argument that ensued between Michelangelo and the patrons of the Florence Cathedral who were paying for the, the sculptor. They had a, an artistic disagreement over what kind of statue to create. The patrons of the cathedral who wanted a, this particular statue to be among several statues of Bible heroes that were going to grace the cathedral. They wanted a picture or a statue of a victorious Michelangelo, having just defeated Goliath on the battlefield. A proud and victorious look on his face. The sling dangling by his side, having done its work. Michelangelo's foot resting firmly on the head of Goliath that had been severed, just as the Bible story accounts for it. But Michelangelo wanted a a different kind of portrayal of David. He didn't want the portrayal of David after he had defeated the Goliath. He wanted the portrayal of David just prior to going onto the battlefield to face Goliath. He wanted David to not be a symbol of strength and victory, but a, a symbol of commitment and courage. He, he wanted David's face to be determined, but also recognizing the danger. Steely eyes looking out onto the battlefield at the challenge that was before him. Veins coursing blood to his muscles, preparing him for battle. And the sling resting on his shoulder, the, the ready position that warriors used when they carried their slings into battle. Michelangelo explained that he wanted to catch David in this, what he called, sacred moment. 
That, that moment between decision and action. David has determined what God has called them to do, what must be done, what he must do. But he has yet to step out on the battlefield. And so he must summon the courage and the strength and the faith to take that step. And Michelangelo believed that that moment between decision and action is for all of us the most sacred moment. It's the moment that converts commitment to courage. Faith into action. Good intentions into bold and disciplined behaviors. Well, Michelangelo won the argument. And I'm glad he did, aren't you? Because when we look at the David, we remember the story of the shepherd boy who went out on the battlefield to defeat the giant Goliath. While all the Hebrew warriors stood on the sidelines in fear, David stepped out in courage and defeated the giant. And it reminds us that all of the great victories in life begin not on the battlefield, but in the heart and in the mind. The greatest victories you and I will ever experience are victories over self. Victories over doubt and fear and excuses. Before you can ever win a victory on the battlefield against a giant, David would remind us, you must first win the battle in that sacred moment where you stand between decision and action and you move from the sidelines of discernment onto the battlefield of courage. So welcome back to the series that we started last week on the book of James. And if you are here last week, you know that uh, the book of James is not really a book. We call it a book, but it's actually a letter, a letter written by a guy named James. Good, you were paying attention last week, right? And James wrote this letter to Jewish Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and some of you from a Roman Catholic background uh, contacted me this week. You had some issues with that whole idea of Jesus having half-brothers and sisters, and uh, I've included some scripture references for that for several of you. I can send more out. Uh, might even include it in my e-note this week. Uh, Roman Catholics believe that those were actually cousins, not brothers or half-brothers or half-sisters. So uh, the way I look at this is that's just one of those differences between Catholic theology and Protestant theology, and you can decide whether you want to consider James a cousin of Jesus or a half-brother. It doesn't really matter. The point is, James was related to Jesus And he was very skeptical of who Jesus was until after the resurrection when then he became a true believer because he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. He became the the lead pastor, the senior pastor of the first Christian church of Jerusalem and a leader in the early Christian movement. And he wrote letters to encourage Christians. And uh, we're, we're looking at that letter and what that means. And we're spending the days up to Easter preparing to understand the themes and the ideas and the concepts, the truths that God gives us through his word through the pen of the epistle James. And so uh, we've been encouraging you to bring your Bible with you, bring a notebook to take notes, because one of the best ways to learn is to not just listen, but to write and reflect later. And so we're encouraging you to do that. Get connected in a small group where you can learn and have conversation with others about what you're learning. We're encouraging you to do that all through this season of Lent. And this morning we're going to talk again about perseverance and what that means in our life. We started this conversation last week. But whether we care to admit it or not, here's the truth. We're living in a battlefield, aren't we? You know, when you think about it, this is a wonderful world, lots of good things to affirm, but the Bible also tells us that while this is our Father's world, God has created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, 
We are currently living in a time where the earth is a battlefield between good and evil, right and wrong, light and darkness. That's why there's so many military images in the Scripture. We're told to endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ. We're told that we are to fight the good fight, to put on the full armor of God so we can stand firm in battle. And we're told that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil and Spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a battle going on. And you and I need the wisdom and the courage and the discipline and the perseverance to endure and be victorious in that battle. And that's where James can really help us. Because James was writing during a time when those early Christians understood that they were living in a battlefield because they were experiencing the persecution and the pressure and the struggle of following Jesus in a culture that didn't honor Jesus didn't adhere to Christian values. And and the early Christians understood that the goal of this life is not to be comfortable and secure and at ease. The goal of this life is to give glory and honor to God and advance His kingdom. And the early Christians knew, as James writes, that faith is required to do that. You have to have a determination in your mind and it has to get lived out in action. Belief has to get translated into behavior. And that's required over the long haul. This is why perseverance is so essential because as we try to live out our faith, we're kind of swimming against the stream, against the current. And sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you get discouraged. Sometimes you even get distracted. And sometimes as a Christian, you can go AWOL and be missing in action. So let's uh, continue our study. Let's turn to James chapter 1. Again, if you brought your Bible, the book of James in the New Testament. It's right after the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. Again, we're calling it the book of James, but it's, it's a letter. And the biblical term for a letter is an epistle. Good, yes. Half the New Testament, maybe more than half the New Testament is made up of these letters. And James chapter 1. Last week we looked at verse 1 and 2. We started to look at verse 3. Because we're discovering that the Christian faith does require perseverance. And perseverance is a test that we go through. God is going to test you and me in our faith. Because faith that has not been tested cannot be trusted. You and I don't really know what kind of faith we have until we find ourselves tested. Right? That's when we discover what kind of faith. Because I can fool myself. I can say I'm devoted and committed and faithful and... Trust in God and all this. I can, I can say that all day long. But put me in a difficult situation and see how I respond to that. Have you noticed, have you noticed, we talk a lot about acting like a Christian and that's important, but you know what's harder than acting like a Christian? Reacting like a Christian. Right? Reacting to the challenges and the problems and the struggles of life. Learning. That's, see, that's when faith is tested. How do I respond? Can I do the right thing when the pressure's on? It's not easy, it's not popular, it's not convenient to do the right thing, but will I do the right thing? Will I maintain a joyful attitude when I'm in a bad mood, when I'm frustrated, when I'm irritated? Right? Can I handle disappointment and adversity without becoming like a whining little baby? Right? Look again at uh, verse 2. We started this last week. Let's, let's look at, at verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you faith trials of many kinds. Let's just... Let's just be reminded again of what we talked about last week. God does not put a protective bubble around His people. Does He? We, we, the truth of the matter is, 
When you live according to biblical principles, when you live according to faith, and when you seek to be obedient to God, that spares us from a lot of pain and sorrow that comes from living life sinfully, foolishly. But even when you're living white, even when you're living well, you are going to experience tragedy, suffering, challenges. Anybody here ever experienced adversity? Right? Of course, we all have. It's a part of life. But here's the difference. It's how we deal with it as we go through it. Don't we, do we let the trials and the adversities refine us or define us? We always have a choice. And that choice is, do I move from decision to action, commitment to actually courage? Verse 3. This testing of your faith. Look at that. Circle that word testing for a second. If, you, if, you, if you're using your own Bible. Testing. Okay? This testing of your faith produces perseverance. And that word testing is very interesting. In fact, if you met with a small group this week and you watched the Francis Chan video, you know that word testing in the Greek. An important word. It has to do with how they would refine gold and silver in ancient times. They would take the impure gold and the impure silver in its raw form and they would put it in a pot called a crucible, and they'd put it in a blazing furnace, and they'd melt it all down, burning off all the impurities out of the gold or out of the silver. And that impurities, the impurities would, would rise to the top and form a little kind of a film on top. And that film was called dross. And the refiner would take it out of the fire, drain off the dross, put it back in the fire, let it get warm again, burn off more impurities, and then drain off the dross. We'd do that over and over and over again. And then finally... All the impurities would be burned out. All the dross would be drained off. And all that was left was the pure, valuable gold or silver. And the way the refiner tested, tested, that's the word that James did. The way the refiner tested to see if the gold or the silver was pure, he'd look in it. And if he could see his reflection clearly, he knew it had been refined and it was of pure value. This is what James has in mind when, when he's talking about God testing our faith. He allows us to be refined. He allows, it to, he allows the, the trials and the troubles to burn off the dross so that what's left is pure. And He can look at you and me in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our problems, and He can see that we're responding the, the way He would have us respond. They're, they're see, he's seeing His reflection in us. And, get this, He wants others to see His reflection in us. See, you don't just go through trials and troubles for your own sake. You and I, we go through trials and troubles for the sake of others so they can see how we handle it and they can discover the difference that Jesus Christ makes in our lives. And they can see the reflection of the Father in us. I mean, go, go back to that story of David and Goliath. We know that, that story, most of us, right? If David had never gone out on the battlefield to face Goliath, if he had never taken that challenge, that struggle on, if he hadn't been willing to do that, if he hadn't tested his faith by going out there, he would have never experienced the victory that God had for him. That's why James says, count it all joy. If you didn't circle that last week, circle it this week. Verse 2, count it all joy or consider it joy. Because the trials, even though they're not fun, the trials are necessary and useful. And in the end, they perfect us. They make us mature. So, how are you handling the testing of your faith these days? How are you dealing with your giants? How are you responding to the trials and the adversities? Are you giving God the opportunity to use them for good? Are you making that choice in the moment of choice? 
to take the appropriate action necessary so that God can use you for His glory. You know, in in the time we have left, I want to get very practical and offer some personal disciplines, some personal practices that you and I can engage in on a regular basis so that we're making sure that we're counting it all joy and we're letting God use trials to, to bring us to maturity so that we're persevering. Some very practical disciplines we can use. And we, we already talked about one last week, that this idea of interpreting properly the circumstances we're in. Remember, it's all about interpretation. That's why James says, consider it joy or count it all joy. He's saying interpret your circumstances appropriately in light of your faith. Right? How we, there's the event or the circumstance, then there's how we interpret it. What story do you tell yourself when you're going through challenges or difficulties? What the Bible calls faith is fundamentally a, a mental discipline that says, I will interpret my circumstances in light of God's Word, God's strength, God's character, and who I am in Christ Jesus. I mean, think about David at the Valley of Elam. You know, David, the reason David was there, the Hebrews were about to have a battle with the Philistines. And Goliath came out onto the battlefield and said, instead of us having a war, let's do a one-on-one competition, mano a mano. He said, you say, he calls out to the Hebrews, he says, you send out one warrior to fight me. And if he beats me, we'll be your slaves. If I beat him, you'll be our slaves. And the Hebrews were frightened because Goliath was so big. And they trembled in fear. David wasn't even a soldier. He wasn't even, a, he wasn't even in the army. He was there delivering supplies. And he sees what's going on. All these soldiers, these Hebrew soldiers, whimpering in fear. Oh, that Goliath, he's awesome. He, he's too, too big. He's too, he's, too, he's too big to hit. David saw it completely different. He said, no, he's not. He's too big to miss. He said, he said give me a rock. I'll go out there. God's, God's got plans and purposes for His people, and, and I, I'm going to go out there and show you what, what God's about. See, totally different interpretation of the circumstances. And see, how we interpret makes a huge difference. I remember about 10, 11 years ago, I went on a mission trip to Africa. There, it was a group of us from a variety of different churches. And, uh, you know, when you go on a mission trip, people fit certain personality types. And two of the personality types you have is you have one personality type, kind of the Eeyore person that's always got a complaint or always got a reason why this isn't a good idea or always, got a, always kind of grumbling and frustrated and just kind of pulling everybody down. And then you've got the, the other end, you've got the person that's kind of positive and encouraging and upbeat. And sure enough, on this trip, there were, there were both kinds. There was one person that was, was just always, you know, everything that went bad, everything wasn't easy or convenient. They had a complaint about it and grumbling about it. Then this other person was so encouraging. And on this particular trip, we had several experiences that were sort of difficult, setbacks, unexpected, challenges. And I loved the, this one guy who was so encouraging. He, he was a, a military guy, and I don't know if, if it was his military training or if it was just his personality or his Christian faith, but one of the things he'd always say when, when this other person started to grumble about what we had to do or why this wasn't a good idea or, or whatever, he'd always say, you know what? This is an opportunity to excel. Don't you love that? This is an opportunity to excel. What a way to interpret what we're going through, right? The little teeny plant, look at that picture. The little teeny plant sees the asphalt parking lot as 
an opportunity to excel. How do you see the giants in your life, the problems in your life, the struggles in your life? You get a difficult homework assignment at school. How do you see that? Is that something to whine about or is that an opportunity to excel? Got issues at work? It's an opportunity to excel. Going through health struggles? It's an opportunity to excel. Financial problems? Opportunity to excel. Relationship difficulties? Opportunity to excel. It's the testing of your faith. God is refining you, empowering you, equipping you. And faith that hasn't been tested can't be trusted. So, interpretation is key. We talked a little bit about that last week. Now let's move on. Here's, here's another key for perseverance. Don't just, it's not just how we interpret, but it's also this. Notice what it says here in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Pray and ask God for wisdom. This is the second key when we're facing difficulties or struggles or going out on the battlefield to take on giants. Pray for wisdom. Here's the good news. God wants to give it to us without finding fault. He gives generously. Prayer is not so much asking God to rescue us from our troubles. Prayer is asking God to equip us to be victorious over our troubles. Amen? Right? See, prayer is not an avoidance strategy. Prayer is a battle strategy. You can't pray the giants away. You've got to go face them. But you can face them with strength and wisdom that God can provide in that sacred moment between choice and action. What are you going to pray for? Pray for wisdom. Ask God to give it to you. And He will. He won't be up there in heaven and say, well, stupid, about time you asked for wisdom. No, He's not going to do that. He's going to say, I am ready to give. Thank you for asking. So, ask God and He'll give generously the wisdom you need. The book of Proverbs tells us that we should seek wisdom. Because it's not just about praying. You know, James doesn't say this directly, but he kind of says it indirectly. In other places in Scripture we see this, that when we ask God for wisdom, we are then obligated to pursue the wisdom that God provides. Part of getting wisdom involves seeking after it. Right? In the book of Proverbs it says this, it says, in all of your getting, get wisdom. You know, we human beings, we're naturally accumulators, obtainers. We want to get stuff. We want to achieve stuff. We want to accomplish stuff. And the, the book of Proverbs says, you know what? It's great to get stuff and accomplish stuff and all that. But in all of your getting and all of your obtaining and all of your achieving, make wisdom the number one thing you go after. Because without wisdom, all that other stuff won't matter. Jesus put it this way. He said, if you seek, you will what? You will find, right? Notice what Jesus says there. If you seek, you will find. That's a conditional promise. The condition is, you got to seek. And when it comes to wisdom, here's what's true. The finding is reserved for the seekers. Are you seeking after wisdom? Lots of scriptures talk to us about the, the sin of neglect, the sin of laziness, the sin of sloth. Part of what that means, I think, is to be surrounded by the possibility of gaining God's wisdom and not go after it, not seek after it. This, by the way, is why I'm a big fan of continuous learning. Reading books, taking classes, going to workshops and seminars and conferences, and 
sermons and podcasts and taking notes and going over the notes and praying over the notes and talking to other people about what you're learning. There are gold mines of wisdom all around us. Here's a question. Who's going to get a shovel? Who's going to get a pick? Who's going to go and do the work of extracting the wisdom, applying it to their lives, living it out in that moment of choice between decision and action? You know, many of the struggles and difficulties and adversities you and I have, it's simply an indication that we lack a certain level of wisdom and we need to learn and grow in order to deal with the problem or overcome the adversity or slay the giant. See, here's the deal. Don't wish your problems were smaller. Wish you were wiser, stronger, better. And then do the work necessary to become that. Because the way we grow is by solving problems. And when we solve a problem, the reward we get is our faith is tested and we discover God's wisdom can be trusted. And now we're ready to take on even bigger problems. That's how we grow. Overcoming our giants. And many of the best blessings in your life and in my life come in the form of a problem that God is asking us to work through and overcome. Because the giants that come into your life and life, they don't come to obstruct, they come to instruct. I can still remember, I can still remember years ago when my wife Lynn and I hit some really difficult financial times. And let me confess here, it was my own foolish behaviors and foolish choices that caused that. I've been raised in a home where I've been taught basic biblical financial principles of wisdom, and I neglected them when I got into adult life. And Lynn and I found ourselves in a very difficult financial situation. We had to pull our child out of preschool. We had to cut off the cable. We had to do a yard sale just to pay the bills. We had to go down to one car. We had to go to macaroni and cheese just about every night. It was some tough times, and I could feel the pain. And then... I realized I need some I need some real serious help. Got a hold of a book by Dave Ramsey called Total Money Makeover. I read it. Then I reread it. Then I took notes on what I read. And I began I, I began applying those biblical wisdom principles to my financial reality. And then Lynn and I went and took Financial Peace University and it reinforced those choices and decisions we had to make to to get control of the finances and to honor God in this area. And I'm telling you, when we began to honor God's wisdom in our finances, God turned everything right side up for us. Because we had the wisdom. Now here's the deal. We had to do the work. We had to read the book. We had to take the class. We had to do what it said to do to experience what we needed to experience. But I'm telling you, friends, when you are willing to do the work of taking wisdom into your life and living it out. What a huge difference it makes. Uh, I remember a gentleman uh, several years ago in our church lost his wife of 40 years. After a battle with cancer, she passed away. He was devastated, as you might imagine. What a terrible loss. He was really struggling for, for several weeks with depression and grief. We got him into our grief share program. We, we got him uh, some books on how to process loss and grief and sadness, and how to work through that, because it is a process. And uh, he began going to grief share, watching the videos, doing the homework, reading the books, and over time, he was healed of his sadness and grief. Now, uh, let's be clear, when when you lose your wife of 40-some years, you never get over that, but you can get through it, and you you can grow through it and recover and heal. 
And uh, that's what happened to him. Because he took the wisdom, sought it out, applied it to his life. You know, uh, I can still remember a conversation I had with a a woman several years ago going through a a nasty and bitter divorce. Her husband had left her uh, for another woman. He'd been having an affair on her, found out, then he just left her. They had two kids, and one of those child children was a special needs child and uh not only did this guy leave but he took the money with him and he was really fighting the child support and everything and they, this family uh, this this mom and her kids were really struggling financially she was dealing with this sadness of being betrayed and her anger and resentment and the kids were hurting and it was just a it was a terrible situation and uh her husband was off with his new honey enjoying a new season of life while she was trying to pick up the pieces and she was so bitter and so angry, and so resentful. And you can understand that, but here's the deal. You can't stay there. And uh, got her into uh, some counseling, got her some books on forgiveness, uh, got her in touch with a, a member of the church who had gone through a, a bitter divorce and had worked through that, and she began to practice the wisdom she was receiving, and wow, what it did to her life. The way it began to heal her and change her. See, any struggle, any problem, any adversity, any giant you and I face, some Christian brother or sister has already gone through that. And chances are they've written a book or have a seminar or a webinar or there's counselors who are experienced with doing this, dealing with this. There's resources all around us. Here's the question. Are you going to avail yourself? Are you going to seek out? Are you going to apply the wisdom? Because in life we all have to deal with one of two pains. You might want to write this down. This is really important. In life, we all have to deal with one of two pains. The pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Discipline says, I'll do the hard work necessary to grow, to get better, so that I don't have to live with the constant pain of regret. What kind of pain do you want to deal with? The pain of discipline that leads to growth or the pain of regret that just weighs on you, right? Because it... At the end of our life, we'll look back over the trials and tribulations and whether or not we sought wisdom or not. And here's what we'll either wish we had sought wisdom or we'll be glad we did seek wisdom. It's available. You ought to go check out our church library. One of the best, we got one of the best libraries any church ever has. I'd encourage you to go check it out. Treasure trove of godly wisdom. You know, the word for disciple in the Bible, the word for disciple means what? Student. Student, we never stop learning because the Lord never stops teaching and the greatest victories in your life and in my life come when we take His wisdom, which He freely offers it, and we use it in our lives. So let me leave you this morning with this question. When you get to that moment between choice and action, and you think about David and his moment, that sacred moment, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to decide, hey, I've had enough whining, hiding, kowtowing, complaining. I've had enough playing the victim in my life. It's time to reinterpret my circumstances in light of God's Word. It's time to let adversity refine me instead of define me. It's time to move to action with the wisdom that God provides. Because faith, once it's been tested, can be trusted. It's both a joy and a privilege to get out on the battlefield. We get stronger, wiser, and better when we do that because life is a school. Problems are the curriculum. Giants are the instructors. 
School is always in session. The classroom is a battlefield. We have everything we need. Let's get out there. Those giants don't stand a chance. 